Father, we praise you and I thank you, Lord. Thank you for this conference. Thank you for the things that we're gleaning and learning. Lord God, I just ask that as we go through this session, that, Lord, you would receive honor and glory. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in each one of us, the callings that you have for each one of us, and I just pray your blessings upon this session. Open our ears, speak to our hearts. Speak through me, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So a little bit about myself first. Um, I am an internist. I serve in Michigan, southwestern Michigan. I've been part of this conference for a number of years and then not, and I'm back at, uh, by request. So Dan Fountain, who's a legend name, and I put curriculum together many years ago. The curriculum is actually back on the back table, and I found out by Mike Soldering and um, Daniel O'Neill that they're still using that curriculum. What I've discovered, and all of us will realize this, that we are truly triune beings. And when I first graduated from my residency, I really struggled with caring for the spiritual needs of the patient, caring for the medical needs of the patient, and trying to still stay on time. If we respect our patient's time and the next patient that's scheduled after the one that you're seeing and try to minister whole person care, how does that happen, and how does it stay on care, and how does it stay on track? It used to be a delight when I'd have patients that canceled because then it gave me more room. Of course, administration didn't like it when you canceled your patients or they canceled patients because then, of course, the revenue is not there. So it was a forever tension, and yet through discovering God's precepts in whole person care, it enabled me to render care much more effectively. To begin with, one of the things that I have in my practice in Michigan is a lay ministry group. And that is a group of volunteers that each spend half a day with me. And when I come across patients with more specific needs, I can refer them over to that person that's in my office. For instance, I could say, bring the patient X, Y, and Z who just found out that their teenage daughter was pregnant. I could bring him in to the next patient. I'm going to bring him into the lay minister and say, this is so-and-so. They're Christian. They're brokenhearted because their daughter, they just found out that their daughter was pregnant. I can back out, let them minister, and the patient still gets their needs tended to. But through this, though, one of the things that I discovered is when you listen to your patients, you're going to hear some things that if you listen carefully, they're going to tell you areas of brokenness because there's common things. One of my instructors when I was in medical school yet, said if you listen to the patient long enough, they will tell you what's wrong. Well, before practice, that didn't make any sense. It's like, what do you mean they're going to tell me? That's why they're coming to me. I'm the doctor. I'm supposed to tell them. Indeed, I was proven very, very wrong very quickly. But too many of us don't listen to our patients. So today you're going to hear some of the things that I discovered. First off, we are triune beings. We're created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our image. That speaks to the Trinity very, very early in the word. John 1, 1 and 2, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It was in the beginning with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We see the triunity of God, and we're created in his image. We, too, are triune beings. Colossians states that the image of God exists perfectly in Christ. He is the express image of the invisible God. Given the equality then that exists between God, we also know that the Holy Spirit then is an exact replica 
of God. That being the case then, as they bear the image of Christ, so do we. 2 Corinthians 3, 8 to 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. So we are the express image of Christ. My lifetime verse, 3 John 2, tells us, Brethren, above all, you desire, we desire to prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. What does that tell me? As I prosper and I take care of my soul, God has to take care of the rest. One of the other verses, Romans 8, 29 through 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, looked at this, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. What does it tell us? That he's called us, he's appointed us, he's justified us, and we are to be the express image of God. We're in the process of being restored. But the difference between us and Christ is we're broken. We're broken by the things that we've done and the things that have been done to or said to us. Some people approach their lives like they're on a fast-track roller coaster. They're going to grip on with everything they have. They're going to take the bumps and ups and downs of life and as it gets battered around and they get off and a little wobbly initially. That's kind of the way some patients come into us. Wobbly, broken. And we've got to understand that they've let their lives happen to them. It's not the way that God had ever designed it that their lives happen to them. John 10.10 tells us, Satan comes to steal the story, but I've come to try to have life and life more abundantly. But the point of brokenness, they've reached the point of disappointment, despair, depression, angry, bitterness, all those things that happen. They come in and they're broken, and we get to see them in their brokenness. But we also get to be the point of contact, to be a point of contact for wholeness and to bring the wholeness of Christ to them. People also hurt one another, and we all know hurt people hurt people. And so the cycle begins. Just as that roller coaster can leave you a little unstable, so does an emotional roller coaster. Deplete the body. I don't know why it keeps going off like that. And since the mind and body are linked, we also know then that as those emotions are broken, it also is going to determine how one feels physically. There's probably not anybody in the room that doesn't understand what a tension headache is, right? It's our body processing the external tension and we develop a headache. I could give you the best of medications, but unless we deal with the tension, your headache's not going to be gone. Your headache's not going to be resolved. Certain emotions release hormones. Those hormones absolutely have been shown through scientific studies that can trigger the development of significant diseases. Hence, they're John 2. Be in health, even as your soul prospers. Researchers have shown a direct link, this is a direct link, between hypertension, coronary artery disease, autoimmune diseases, infections, and allergies, all related to our emotions. Furthermore, scientists have also shown negative emotions 
have significant diseases as well. I was just down to the lecture on food as medicine. Food does this too, but so does our emotions. Fear, depression, anxiety lead to the development of cancer. I can't tell you the numbers of patients that I've seen that have had cancer, that definitely there's some brokenness in their past. Doesn't mean that that's everybody. No. Is there a link? Absolutely. Heart disease, heart palpitations, mitral valve prolapse, irritable bowel syndrome. If I opened up and said fibromyalgia, that's a can of worms all itself. (laughs) Tension headaches, rheumatological diseases. Again, 3 John 2 connotes, as we take care of the soul, so shall the body be taken care of. So what does prosper mean? We think sometimes it's financial prosperity. But the definition for prosper is exceed, succeed in material terms, be financially successful, flourish physically. Flourish physically, grow strong and healthy. It's exact definition. Now, how many of you know, let's take you back to your training days, how many of you know the chief complaint is rarely the chief complaint? Okay. As a resident, as a student, I'd do my great HPI and I'd go in and I'd present to the attending, walk back into the exam room, and they gave a totally different story. It's like, wait a second, I didn't make this up. This is what they said to me. But as we listen longer, there's layers to their story. And the chief complaint is seldomly the chief complaint. When people carry burdens that only the Lord can, they get broken. And we are broken. And I'm here to tell you the brokenness has escalated during COVID. The number of patients that I've heard, their grandparents and haven't seen their grandbabies yet, haven't spent any holidays with their kids, felt so isolated Right? Humans don't have the wisdom nor the strength to carry the burdens that are meant to be left at the foot of the cross. So common complaints, I want you to begin to think, what are the common symptoms that you see for the patients that you take care of? What are those things and what can they be metaphors for? What can you ask next? That as you move towards a symptom, it can bring about a spiritual conversation. When I see my patients, I really am looking for why did God bring about this appointment and what can I do and how can I interject faith with that patient encounter? What would you be concerned about if you had these symptoms? Oftentimes I'm able to head off the patient's questions because I understand what they're looking for and what their concerns are. But as we identify the patient's issues, we really need to listen to what our patients are saying. The fear, anxiety, gloom, anger, resentment. You can read those as well as I can. Guilt, shame, denial, self-hatred. There's a young man that I recently saw as a new patient. He was COVID positive, diabetic. His sugars are off the Richter scale, much more worse much, much worse as COVID has come on. I'm not seeing him for his diabetes, although I could, but he came in to me for COVID treatment. And that appointment, I also saw that he had a huge blister on his toe. We need to take care of that blister, and of course, there was an ulcer underneath that. But as I started to take care of that blister, and I touched him, he recoiled. You're going to touch me? 
It was suddenly like he was a leper of our century. I said, well, of course I'm going to touch you. I'm a doctor. He said, but, but, but. And he literally recoiled because I was going to touch him. Guys, our patients are broken. And he felt shame somehow because he was diagnosed with COVID. How crazy is that? I keep doing that, I think. But those things are spiritual issues. Whole person care. We take a spiritual history to identify spiritual disease. In medicine, we take the history and we know that it reveals pathophysiology. We take a spiritual history to understand our patient's spiritual pathophysiology. Do they know God as revealed by Jesus Christ? Do they believe their life is making it? Can they acknowledge when they're not? What are our patients' needs? Their need is for salvation. Their need is for hope, for peace and wholeness. If you're in medicine, we have the amazing opportunity to be the conduit between our patients and the Lord Jesus. And as we hold on to God's hand and the patient's hand, we have the opportunity to connect them. So should we share? It absolutely we should share. It's not a question of whether we should. Scripture mandates it. At the end of every single gospel is the Great Commission in some capacity. Right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Mark 16, 15 through 19. For brevity's sake, we're not going to read those. And sure, I'm, most of you are very familiar with these. But these were Jesus' parting words. So obviously... It's important to him. And if it's important to him, it should most definitely be important to us. If we are to be his witnesses first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. Many of you are going on foreign soil or have been on foreign soil. Been in 32 different countries. My calling is short-term missions. Most recently I was in Haiti after the earthquake in, in August. But he says to go. And if those things are important to God, they need to be important to us. But where is your Jerusalem? Your Jerusalem is with that patient that you're going to see Monday morning. That patient that you see at the hospital. That patient that you're going to have the next encounter. That's your immediate Jerusalem. That's where we need to begin ministering or we shouldn't be ministering across the world. Jesus' example, he certainly said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. I tell you, I do nothing without the... Bob, what's going on? I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. That's what we need to be doing. As the Father is working, so should we. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. We need to be working in concert with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is our model. He preached the good news. He taught the people. He healed those who were sick. And he gave this mandate to us. For we are the body of Christ through whom God works today. Jesus is no longer walking the earth in physical form. We are his hands and his feet. 
I said the Great Commission is important, but what's more important is our response to that Great Commission. Okay. Every one of you believe that you're called of God into doing what you're doing, or you wouldn't be here at this conference. So we know that you're called, and what you do is determined by who you are. First and foremost, I'm a child of the Most High God. What I do should flow out of that. What I see and who I am as a physician comes secondarily. That we should proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. You know, we can't compartmentalize our Christianity and say, well, I'm a Christian when I'm involved in my church and I'm a Christian on Sunday mornings if it's not also infiltrating your practice. It kind of creates a spiritual schizophrenia if we're a Christian on Sunday and in our church, but don't let that carry into our practice. So our response is really is 2 Corinthians 5, 15, and 16. For I'm compelled. That word compelled is strong. I'm compelled, and I work with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says, is that we're compelled, and it controls us. We've been called to die and alive for Christ's sake, working together with him. The cool thing is we don't have to do this on our own. We've never been called to do it on our own. But we're called in concert with the Holy Spirit. And as we listen, it's going to show us the needs of the patient. So why spiritual therapy? Spiritual uh, therapy rightly diagnoses the spiritual problem. Spiritual brokenness plays a major role in physical disease. It can be the cause of physical or mental disease, or at least it can be affecting spiritual disease. And it determines further the patient's coping resources and responses to their illness. I'm going to skip, for brevity's sake, and I'm going to skip a couple of these. So what is spiritual therapy? Guys, it's not proselytizing. Proselytizing is literally trying to force your convictions on somebody. The word tells us in Revelations 3.20, I stand at the door of your heart and knock whoever answers the door. Okay? Just as God himself knocks, so should we. But as we knock and that door opens, we need to be bold enough to go through that door and bring the gospel to our patients. So the goal is to know that to let the patients know they are loved, they are precious, they are forgiven, they feel value and self-worth. With Jeremy, who recoiled when I went to take care of that blister on his toe, and literally he did, he recoiled. He had no self-worth at that point. He let him know, I care about you. But more importantly, God cares about you. He's new, new, new to my practice. He doesn't have a faith value yet. But every single time he's been in there, he's allowed me to pray with him. And he just, the first time that I actually touched his feet and cleansed his toe where that blister was and took away and, and he took away that devitalized tissue, he all but wept. He said, I can't believe you're touching me. Okay? He had no self-worth at that point. So initial therapy <clears throat> needs to be words of encouragement or that rhema word that validates people and it neutralizes self-judgment and self-condemnation. Jesus was the great physician. And as the great physician, we are to do what Jesus did. 
and it's important to him to listen to their whole story. I'm going to read Mark 5, and I want us to take a part, if you will. What was this lady's issues? So most of you know the story well, and it's the woman with the issue of blood. And as we look at that, I want to ask you. Okay, thank you. I want to ask you, what was that patient's issue? Was it? Do I need to stand more in front of the mic? Um, I'm just going to point it towards you. Okay. Okay. No. So I'm going to ask you, what was this lady's issue? Was it only physical? Was it spiritual? Was it emotional? So as we look at it, in a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not any better but rather grew worse. Now that in and of itself it bothers me when she's seen many physicians. Right? When she had heard of Jesus come, <clears throat> when she heard of Jesus coming, she came in and pressed behind. For she thought for herself, if I just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of blood was dried up, and she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out from him, turned amongst him and said, Who touched my clothes? Now let's take a look at this, okay? Where's Jesus going first off? How many remember where Jesus was on his way? He was on, Jairus, on his way to Jairus' daughter. Okay? So the Roman centurion called us, Jesus, you've got to come quickly. So yeah, he's got the 911, he's got the ER calling, he's got these people, right? And then everybody's pressing against him. And his disciples are with him, and he's in the masses, and Jesus says, Who touched me? Hello. Okay, how many people are around you? Here, let's go down the center. Let's all stand in the food line like last night. And who touched me? But Jesus says, who touched me? Now, before I go on to that, what was going on in this woman? This woman, 12 years of bleeding. Hello, ladies. Okay, 12 years of bleeding. What happened to her socially? Ostracized. She was considered dirty. She was considered unclean. So she's going through the street. She has to yell, unclean. How embarrassing. How mortifying. Men, what do you think happened to her husband? He left her. He left her. Okay. Next, she wasn't allowed in the temple because she was unclean. So here you have a woman, had spent all that she had, was not any better, but even made worse, was left alone, was a social outcast, financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually broken. And she thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garments, I'll be made whole. The word says that immediately. Jesus knew that the virtue had fled out, flowed out of his body. 
The words here is important to realize because the first word is that she was made, she was healed. Going to the Greek, it's a very different word than the next couple of verses. So Jesus is in this 911 call on his way to Jairus' daughter. And what does it say? His disciples said unto him, You see the multitudes thronging, and you ask who touched me? And he looked around and saw she who had done this thing. The other thing is she could have been stoned at that point, because she made Jesus unclean. And he looked around about and saw that who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what she had done, came and told Jesus the whole truth. Now, that's 12 years of truth. Okay? How many of us get rather impatient when our patients are blah, 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 blah? <laughs> Jesus listened to the whole story. That means he took a history. That means he listened. But what happened next? He said, My daughter, your faith has made you well. My daughter, what impact do you think that had on her in that moment? My daughter. It sure shut up the naysayers. It sure restored her heart. Wait, I'm your daughter? They didn't even allow me in the temple. I'm your daughter? You see value in me? I'm your daughter? Really? Ladies and gentlemen, it's that rhema word that we need to be looking for in our patients. It's that rhema word that our patients are longing to hear. Jeremy, when I touched his foot and recoiled, I had the opportunity to be Jesus' hand on that man's foot. So let me tell you about Darla. God sometimes has a sense of humor. You haven't figured it out yet. So I'm in my practice last week, and my nurse schedules this patient in a very busy schedule. And then she gets off the phone and says, I thought this patient was ours because her husband's ours. She's not. And we don't really have room in the schedule, but I put her in the schedule. And I know we're not taking your patients, but I didn't want you to take your patients. So what do you want me to do? I said, well, probably means I won't have lunch, but you scheduled her. I'm not going to call her and tell her she can't come. We'll see what God has, because God has an appointment with this lady. I had no idea how much a God appointment was going to be, but it was. She felt the urgency to come into my office because she was ready to quit drinking. She had been drinking a bottle of wine nightly. It was destroying her marriage. Not so much impacting her job yet, but she was absolutely an overachiever, but this was destroying her marriage and she was ready to stop. Yeah, talk about a schedule. Right? But as I listened to her story, I knew that she had been invalidated. She was a, her marriage was, I don't remember now, 10 or 12 years old. But it was the second marriage for both of them. 
the children that they tried raising, they gained custody of shortly after the marriage. And she tried being mom, and that didn't work out real well because dad's there for the children. But I heard as I listened to her story, her invalidation started much, much younger than that. But when she got mad at her husband because she took the kids aside, she would go in the bed and when she would drink. She said, I just would get back at him. Suddenly I said, were you doing that to him or were you doing that for attention from him? She realized, indeed, she was doing it for attention from him. So what do you do with this? Give the aunt abuse? Send John away? That's not what I did. I listened and recognized her invalidation and her lack of spiritual understanding of who she was and that God loved her and that God validated her, that Christ died for her and that Zephaniah says, you are my daughter in whom I dance over. As I ministered some of those words, she looked at me and said, I feel safe here. So you feel safe in the arms of God. This lady decided that she was ready to give up the drinking. Said, you know what, we need to hold you accountable. And I want you to let me know every single night whether or not you've made it successfully. Now I'm going to read some of the texts that I'd gotten very, very recently. Because you can hear her enthusiasm and you could hear her deliverance. One second. But it starts out the first night that she'd made it and that she was free. So the first one says, Hi, it's Darla. I didn't drink today. I said, Praise God. How do you feel? I'm feeling pretty good, trying to stay centered and focused. Next, next day, got rid of all my alcohol last night, and my husband agreed to put away the bourbon because he knows I don't need to look at it nightly. But I am feeling victorious. God is right in the center and has made all the difference in the world. Next day, no drinks. Took time for extra prayer and loudly rebuking Satan and all the other demons that could be around me. I feel free. I feel good. Said, awesome day too. Praise God. Very proud of you. How are you and Tim doing? He's supportive. He can tell this time is different. We even pray together. He understands. I am free. Said, I'm so glad. Stay strong. Thank you so much. I will because God is stronger than I am. I said, yes, indeed. Um, I was off today, off Friday, and relaxed. I'd worked nine days in a row. Tim and I had a great dinner. We spent prayer time afterwards. Thank you so much for this fresh start. The text go on. She is delivered, not because I gave her an abuse, not because I treated her medically, but because I listened. We took that spiritual history and gave her the word of God that is a power for all men to be set free. It's listening to their brokenness and offering that care, ministering to her that care. But the lady in Mark, the same thing. She was broken in all ways. 
And it's only when we bring the word of God to that we understand. Physically, the bleeding stopped. Emotionally and spiritually, but it was that rhema word. For Darla in my office, it was the understanding that she'd been invalidated. We did something called theophastic. And what she saw was the first time that she felt invalidated was as a child at her mother's side when her brother was born because suddenly all the attention went on the brother. She had years of being invalidated. God delivered her that day in my office. It was that rhema word that she was no longer invalidated. We've got to listen to the whole story and take that spiritual history. So how do I start a spiritual history? I don't ask them if they're born again, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. (laughs) But what I do, I incorporate that in my other history questions. Do you smoke? Do you drink? What's your job? Are you working? And what kind of work do you do? Are you married? Key here, are you happily married? There's a whole lot of people that are still in a marriage because it's convenient and they're no longer able to make it on their own. But when you ask that, are you happily married? And I get the answer. Well, if I get a well answer, that gives me a cue into what's going on. And I understand that there's an area of brokenness there. Okay? And then another simple question, a church religious preference. It's pretty non-threatening when I ask it that way. But it gives me some understanding. Helps locate the passion of the patient spiritually. And then the follow-up questions. After the HPI is identified, and I realize that there's areas of brokenness, I may ask, well, how did you cope with it then? Because how they coped in the past is likely how they're going to cope again. What was the source of your strength? Gives me a clue. Do they have God in the center or not? Sometimes, and this question absolutely helps with the patient that does go on with blah, 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 and you've listened enough, and you know you've got to kind of wrap things up, or they've brought the dump truck and ready to dump it all in your lap, once you've heard the key elements, sometimes I'll just ask them, so where's God in all of this? That does several things. It kind of stops their story, and it begins to refocus it all of a sudden, and they'll start to think, I don't know where God is in all of this. And I can kind of refocus and put that question due north again and have them understand God wants to be center of that. But that question has been very, very key for me a lot of times. But it identifies areas of spiritual brokenness. And it determines how how it's complicated the patient's illness. Identifies where the patient is in their Christian walk. The goal is certainly to plant some gospel seeds or to fertilize those and water some gospel ideas. And also harvest if the fruit is ripe. I tend to be very evangelistic in my approach, and oftentimes there's numbers of patients that come to Christ as salvation for the first time. But nonetheless, we still want to approach and bring them a point closer to the gospel. So what is the spiritual history objectives? It's an integral part of whole person care. It identifies where the Holy Spirit is working. We don't want to work where the Holy Spirit's not working. But with Darla, as I listen to her story, teasingly I say, my ears are not parallel to each other. They're perpendicular. So I have one ear towards heaven, the other ear towards the patient. 
And I'm listening as much to the Holy Spirit as I am the patient. And when I knew the word invalidate was Darla's issue, that was what I heard as I listened to her conversation, as I listened to the direction of the Holy Spirit, invalidated. But it identifies where the Holy Spirit is working. A couple other questions. Anything about your illness frighten you? And has this illness changed the way you see yourself or seen God? It cultivates receptivity to the gospel. When I suddenly ask, where is God in all of this? That's pretty generic. And you don't have to be a Christian to say, where is God in all of this? But it certainly identifies and it begins to stimulate thoughts that identify specific needs. It also is an opportunity to identify the image of God in that patient and provides the bridge for the gospel. Chart the responses in some way that you can have that ongoing conversation. You're not going to spend, you know, an hour and a half with every patient, two hours with every patient, but you should be able to bring up previous conversations. They know, number one, you really did listen and you cared, and number two, keep prodding into where God would have you minister to at that point. So and just to simply keeps the conversation going. At some point, a crisis is going to happen, and they're going to call you. I can't tell you the numbers of patients that hadn't necessarily been open to prayer in my office, but something happens, and they're calling my office for prayer. So keeps the conversation going. They know that you're a Christian, and they will bring that back around at some point. It also helps spiritual history, helps identify major spiritual problems. And again, I can't tell you enough. Listen to the spiritual cues. Okay? From whence does your patient get their strength and their significance? Is it based on how they feel about God or the opinion of others? And I'm here to tell you, as healthcare practitioners, it doesn't matter whether you're a nurse, doctor, physical therapy, pharmacist, we all like and kind of live on the highs of the compliments of others. If we're honest, the opinions of others really, really matter to us. But sometimes we get our significance from that. That's never where we're called to get our significance from. We get our significance from God and God alone. But are they understanding that God is all wise, all powerful, everywhere present, ever giving and upholding, but is there for them? Oftentimes as people believe God is there for everybody else, but when you bring it back, to them. And for Darla, she really felt like God was going to disappoint her because so had everybody else. She was a Christian and she gained her significance in being an overachiever. She was very accomplished at work, very accomplished in things she did, but at home was an alcoholic. Big problem. But she gained her significance in the value of what other people said she was and how she looked and how the how she looked to the world. Sometimes as Christians, Jesus is our Savior, but not our Lord. Remember years ago when I was first challenged with that question was by Billy Graham before he passed away. I was at a crusade and he was just hammering his salvation message like he does. And he was asking, but is Jesus Lord of your life? I'd been born again a long time, and he was. But the more that he hammered that, the more I realized he was not over every area of my life. He wasn't over the area of the relationship with my mom. I needed to please my mom. 
instead of please God. I met a young lady this afternoon who's going through that exact thing. We're not to be a people pleaser, but a God pleaser. So is he Lord of their life? And are they growing in the love and faith of God? That godly living. We need to be certain that they're growing in Christ. This next question, do they feel the support of a local body of believers? Guys, look what's happened to our churches over this past year and a half. Churches quit meeting. Then I can tell you 50% or more people are not back in the churches. Some are viewing it online, some are not. Some that are in the churches don't feel the support of the local body of believers because they're not connected in some capacity. Walking the Christian walk alone is pretty lonely. So do they feel the support? If they do not know Christ, would they like to? Sometimes, and somebody said it early in one of the, uh, one of the sessions, um, it was actually the fundraiser, the young lady that, that gave the fundraiser for Sim. She said one of her best friends had told her what a fool she was because she hadn't asked her for financial support. But she'd been on the mission field several times. She was like, but I, you know what I'm doing. What do you mean I didn't ask you? You didn't give me the honor of asking. Some people don't know Jesus Christ because we haven't asked them. They know where we stand, but we've never asked them, would they like to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? So ask them. Poorly performed, oops, poorly performed spiritual care, though, can be toxic. So you've got to make certain that you're listening to them and not enforcing your own agenda. Because it's what God and the Holy Spirit is doing with them. Consider every appointment a divine appointment, like I did with Darla that day. My nurse thought she'd screwed up in scheduling her. She, we weren't taking new patients, and here she is. But it was a God appointment. Okay? Why has God scheduled this appointment? Where's the Holy Spirit leading in this encounter? And how can God use me for his kingdom? Not every encounter has to lead to a gospel presentation, but every visit should represent the gospel in some capacity, knowing that the ultimate goal is the gospel and the ultimate objective is whole person care. We are broken. We are broken without the Holy Spirit. Too many people are living in the past, but we want them to accept the past. We want them to be able to live in the presence and looking to the future. Philippians tells us forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to the high calling of Christ Jesus, looking with hope to the future. So how do we know that the Holy Spirit's at work? The person's drawn to God. The person is concerned about his or her behavior and willing to change to improve their health. That's what Darla came in with. I want to stop drinking. It was kind of a wild situation. She didn't know me from Jack Adam other than I'd seen her husband. And I'd only seen her husband for COVID. But the person desires righteousness, justice, kindness, and compassion for others. Some are angry because they're battling convictions. But what we want to do is join the Holy Spirit for where he's working and listen for areas of wholeness and strength. Your patient's only strength is from God. Not us, not our prescriptions, but only from God. And when we can be that conduit, as I said earlier, between God and them, we're going to bring them to a place 
of wholeness. When the Holy Spirit is working with that person, that issue becomes a central concern. And when you respond to these areas, the patients are grateful. Like Darla saying, I feel safe here. Why? Because I'd listened to her. She was troubled and felt alone. They didn't know where to turn. And what they tried wasn't working to this point, and help seemed impossible. And yet, you cared enough to listen and listen to the whole story. And then we identified needs and offered loving assistance. When you work in concert with the Holy Spirit, our efforts are going to be blessed by God. And don't go where the Holy Spirit's not working. Okay? I'll come back to Renee if I get a chance to. Reasons or excuses. I think presenting and, and practicing in a manner of whole person care, I think we want to say we don't have the time. That's the number one excuse. And yet Jesus, on his way to Jairus' house, took the time. And yet I'm absolutely convinced that the gospel and ministering to somebody can be done in two minutes or less. And I know it can because I've timed it at times. (laughs) So I know it can. And I can tell you that when we do that, not only does it save time on that patient because that patient isn't coming in with habitual complaints again that really are just pseudo-complaints, because we fixed the brokenness. If we don't do that, it's a whole lot like cutting down dandelions. We mow down dandelions, and guess what's going to happen next week? More dandelions. we got to get to the root of the issues. And when we get to the root of the issues, we're not continuing, continuing to cut down dandelions. And our lawn looks a whole lot better. In the long run, it's going to save that precious time. So guiding principles... Proselytism has to be avoided. It's not our agenda, it's God's. If the person to whom you're ministering is not interested in or restraining, resistant to the Christian faith, maintain that open care. The young man with the diabetes who's off the Richter scale, he's not yet a Christian, but he knows I care. He knows I'm willing to touch him when others weren't. He knows I was willing to see him when other doctors weren't because of his COVID. He knows that I care. And I know there's going to be a point in time. And he's letting me pray with him. I know there's going to be a point in time and be able to introduce him to the Father. But discussion of faith should only come after relationship of openness and honesty has been established. The sick person has described the illness or problem for which they are there. And we've demonstrated an interest in them. When we demonstrate that interest in them and we hear them, they then will listen and hear us. You can always share your testimony. Your testimony is yours. Your testimony is irrefutable. And usually somewhere along the line, there's going to be an identification. And it makes us more real to the one to whom we're ministering. When I can tell somebody that I was brought up in a very abusive home, I moved out when I was age 14, suddenly it's like, oh, you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth? And you weren't born and, and raised in a Christian home. And how did you do this? Say, no. But by the power of God. But there go I. But for the sake of God. Okay? Suddenly when I tell them, no guys, it wasn't that way. Or the fact that God healed me of lupus. And I can tell you, I won't take the time now because of time's sake. But God healed me of lupus. I was dying with lupus. Dying. Troy can attest to that. <laughs> Hey, Joyce and Earth that I knew many years ago. But I was 
dying with lupus. And by the Spirit of God, he healed me. They can't refute that. They can't refute that my life took on a total different because of God. So once we listen to them, you can always share your testimony. But how should we share? These six principles, I think, are key, key, key. Number one, why and how should we share? Realize what you have. If you don't realize what you have, how can you share that? So number one, realize what you have. Guys, we've got the answer to the world's problems. The world is crazy. How many of you just seen the world even this past year and a half go crazier? Come on. It's just nuts. But we have the peace to offer people that are broken and scared. So realize what we have, number one. Realize, why have you been saved? You ever contemplated that? Why do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior? When instead I should have gone postal? When I should have hit the streets? I should. Why, did, why am I saved? Realize why you've been saved. And realize it is a great injustice to our patients if we don't point them in the direction of the cross. Hey, if I knew without a shadow of a doubt that right now I had the healing for COVID and would absolutely stop the pandemic and stop the craziness, but I kept it to myself, how wrong would that be? How wrong would it be if I had a cure for cancer and kept it to myself? Though, well, they, they, they don't really want to hear that. We have, we have the answer to the world's problems. We have the answer to your patient that is pouring out their heart and in brokenness. What an injustice when we don't share that. Look for the window of opportunity and go through it. That window will be open before you. But we've got to be looking for that window. When Darla finally said to me she was broken and didn't know what else to do and her marriage was on the line, when she said, I don't know what to do, there was my window. Can I offer you something? And can I tell you what I hear as I listen to your story? That was my window. That's what now has precipitated her texting me daily and saying, victory I'm done. I'm not drinking again. I poured out all the alcohol. Guys, it wasn't because I'm all that great in a doctor. I offered the power of Jesus Christ for deliverance. And I walked through that open window when God opened it. Always take that spiritual history and always offer to pray. Now, does everybody in my practice pray with me? No. Majority do. 98, 99%. When you go back and you look at some of the research and some of the studies, it's off the Richter scale how many patients want their doctors to pray with them. There's been research and surveys that show before surgery, patients want their doctors to pray with them. And the the numbers are astounding. 95 and 96% of patients want their doctors to pray with them. And yet we somehow bought into a lie. That's unethical. There's a whole conference that we do on that. And Bob Mason and Diane are here, and I'm going to speak to that in just a minute. But always offer to pray. From your conversations, you're going to understand spiritual 
what emerges in certain spiritual needs. What is the source of your patient's strength, their self-worth? How is your patient coping with the consequences of brokenness? And we're going to make that spiritual diagnosis. For Darla, it was invalidation. Once we offer and once we identify that spiritual need, confer with our consultant, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to guide and follow his lead. I'm going to skip these just for brevity's sake. This is online so you can get that, the questions. And these are just some typical questions. Now, in asking those questions, you want to be careful that it's not like the Spanish Inquisition and you're asking too many questions all at once. Okay? You still want to listen to what the patient is saying. But have a goal in mind. And remember, we confront our patients every single day. We confront our patients when they're smoking. We confront our patients with alcohol. We confront our patients, you know, their, their lipids are too high and they need to begin to exercise and need to be eating properly. But we get the right to confront when the patient knows they're loved and accepted, valued, understood. And we have that moral obligation. As Christian caregivers, we need to confront their spiritual health, even as we do their physical health. We need to explain. If they ask, why are you bringing that up? What does that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with their health. We need to help them understand how it impacts their health. Prayer. Always get permission to pray. I can't say that often enough. Always get permission to pray. There's one time when I was working in the ER... And I didn't tone it down in the ER. There was once in the ER that I was called on the carpet because I prayed with a patient. An administration called me and, you know, I had to face administration. She said, we understand that you prayed with a patient. I said, yes, I did. Well, I got in the history and I knew what I was going to be called to the carpet for. But this lady said, well, you can't be doing that. And I said, what, time out. Do you realize it's evidence-based? Okay. And you realize that it was patient-focused because I asked the patient if I could pray. And you realize the studies that have been done that shows that prayer absolutely impacts and improves health. And I was able to cite several research articles. And I said, and I continued to ask questions. And I said, she said, yes, but I got personal. I said, so wait a second. If I had a young teenager, 15, and she was sick every single morning, but by afternoon she was not, and 15, 16 years old, guess what? I'm going to ask some personal questions pretty quickly. And I said, so it was really to get at a diagnosis. So says the VP of nursing at one point. So what you're really doing is asking questions to get to their diagnoses and then to see if you can pray with them because they want that. I said, yes, Eileen, that's exactly what I'm doing. And she said, well, keep asking those questions. Okay. So as long as I asked those questions, it was validated and given permission to basically pray in the emergency room. Besides that, I was also given, and I had, how many of you are familiar with Prescanies? Okay. In the ER, I had these highest Prescanies of all the docs. So I was able to bring those into Eileen also and said, do you realize that? I also was given a movie, couple movie tickets because a lady who gave very, very deep pockets, Jewish lady, to the hospital, had given me and written this beautiful note to administration and said, we don't know where you got that doctor, but please keep her. The Jewish lady was one that I had the opportunity to pray with in the ER, 
But before we prayed, she said, yes, you may pray with me. Just don't pray in Jesus' name. I said, ah, you're in good company. Jesus was a Jew, too. She laughed, allowed me to pray with her. But it was a matter of getting permission and praying with the patient. Hence, that's key. That's important. As you ask to pray, then ask, is there anything specifically you could be praying about? It's not everything that we heard may be their greatest issues. Perhaps their greatest issues is even deeper than that. Harvey Elder, who is a precious um, physician, he incorporated that one time. He said, you know, Doc, he said, uh, Sherry, I, I implemented that with the patient. And a patient one afternoon, I was in a big hurry. And I said, oh, is there anything else I could pray for you about? And she responded, yes, Dr. Elder. My daughter committed suicide last night. Unless he'd asked if there was anything else I could pray for, he would have missed that. Then ask, obviously, you believe in God. Do you also believe in Jesus? It's also a good time to bring out any of the other tools, and there's lots of tools as far as the, um, the four spiritual laws or knowing God. But one of the things I do is as I get ready to pray with a patient, obviously you believe in God. Do you also believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross? Yes. Do you know why he died on the cross? Well, for the world's sin. Have you ever asked him to forgive your sin and come into your heart as your Savior? So I started very generic. Do you believe in God? They're letting me pray with them. So obviously they believe in God. I notch it down every question, but then bring it down to you. Have you ever asked Jesus Christ in your heart as your Savior? I think it's important that we realize that, again, that is the hope for our world. That is the hope for the patients that you see. And certainly the gospel is a power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. There is no doubt in my mind that God has called me for such a time as this. But there's also no doubt in my mind that God has called you to such a time as this. I'm going to take just a couple minutes if I can get Bob's slides up here. And you may ask kind of again, how can you? And what are other some tools that are available to help you on this journey in learning spiritual care? Bob, it's not up. You want to come do this? I've got it on my computer, but not there. But there is a preceptorship with METS. I'll just give you a couple minutes and speak to it if you want. While they do that, I'll take questions. Are there any questions? Yes. Okay, so first off, my I, I have definitely put my schedule slightly different. I leave the last 20 minutes on the schedule. Um, most patients are not here in 20 minutes. But I do take the time pretty much, I get a little antsy if I get more than 30 minutes behind. Okay, So I typically am seeing my patients within 30 minutes of their appointment time. Um, sometimes a little longer, not usually. As I said, I don't like being more than 30 minutes. I've got to respect their time. 
One of the beauties that, as I said at the beginning, is that I do have a group of lay ministers in my office, so every half day is covered. So as I'm, if there's more time needed, I can refer them then to the lay minister. They're in my office, yes. Most people don't need a psychiatrist, but most everybody needs somebody to talk to at some point. And as they are pouring out their heart to me, I really don't think I can tell them, you know what, we're out of time, and call the psychiatrist across the county. Okay? What they suddenly hear is, oh, you think it's in my head. Okay? So I'll take the time that I need to, but then I also have somebody, if there's more time, that I can comfortably and easily pass them off to. And say, you know, this is Jenny. Jenny is a Christian. You know, uh, Marion, this is who she is. She's not in a church right now because her church hasn't been meeting. But this is the area of brokenness. I back out. Okay. But I definitely am the one that they're pouring their heart out to. And I listen and tactfully try to pack it back in. Average time, 30 minutes. Sometimes more, sometimes less. But typical appointment time is 30 minutes. Other questions? What's the background of the lay ministers and how do you Say that again? The background of the, of the lay ministers, how they train, how they schedule, how you recruit Great question. So I'll, I'll report this for the recording. I'll, re, I'll repeat it rather. So how do I get the lay ministers and how is that training? So I offer training through my office. Of, it's a 27-hour period training. There is on the back table back there, um, training that Dr. Dan and I had written. It's whole person care. There's a 27 DVD as well as a work booklet. But most of the lay ministers have come either out of my church or out of the patient population. People that I know are strong believers and then they're trained throughout the practice. Other questions? Yes? So my practice structure is First off, it's Rafa Medical Center, and Rafa means the Lord our healer. And I literally have on the door, Rafa, we treat, but God heals. Okay? So patients expect a different experience when they come in. I'll put my marquee out at the street. Okay? But fortunately, all of my staff are born-again believers. I'll go to different churches, but I'm the only practice, I'm the only physician in my practice. I will have a physician join my practice in January. Another born-again believer. So the beauty of owning my own practice is I don't have somebody breathing down my neck telling me I need to see X number of patients. But we're still very, very busy. And as an internist, I see between 20 and 22 patients a day. 24 is a little much. 26 is really hard. But we've had those days. But I, on the average, at least see 20 patients a day. Other questions? Yes. First off, I can't overestimate the importance. The, the question was, what would bring somebody into your practice if they're not Christian, knowing that you're a Christian practice? So first off, we've got to practice excellently. We've got to be an excellent practitioner first. Or we don't even have a right to be heard from a Christian perspective. So quite honestly, I have a, I have a very excellent reputation in my community. And that goes carries very, very long. Very, very far. The other thing is I've never advertised, but certainly word of mouth by my patients. So we are turning about 
eight to ten phone calls away a day because people want to get into my practice. It breaks my heart. It's a good thing I don't have to answer that phone because I would say, yeah, come on in. I'm sure I'll fit you in somewhere somehow. But I think first and foremost, you've got to be an excellent practitioner, whatever we do. Yes? No. 15 is the youngest. It was kind of cool when I did that in the ER with kids. Okay. And yes, her question was, how do we do that with kids and how do we get the parents and so on? The person that I was called to the carpet on was actually a young teenager. And mom called me to the carpet. Although mom was in the ER with me. Okay. Um, But it was actually one that had been um, involved in a Ouija board and... That, that was a pretty, I'll, I'll tell you the rest of the story hereafter a bit. But uh, with mom's permission right there, I ministered to this teenager. But I guess mom got upset at it later. But absolutely with parental consent. But no, I don't see kids. I like the tranquility piece of my office and not screaming kids. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Do you take Medicare or Medicaid? Yes. I do take Medicare too. Typically, they're more complex, and it takes a little more to unpackage that, but yes, we take that. No. And in every one of my, my, my uh, I'm on EPIC, those of you that know EPIC EMR, in my notes, I will make comment. And I've got a dot phrase, dot P-O-R-S, prayer offered and received, salvation, okay. Or prayer offered and received, lay ministry offered and received, so yes. I don't divulge every single thing in the HPI, just out of patient confidentiality, and some is not necessary. But no, I've never been hassled like that. Other questions? Yes? Yes? So the question was, where in southwestern Michigan do I practice and do I have a particularly strong Christian basis in the community? Yes and no. So first off, I work in St. Joe, Michigan. If I was a Michigander, right there. Okay, Very southwest corner, about 40 miles due north of South Bend, Indiana, and about an hour and a half from Chicago. The demographics of the area has probably a little more Christian influence because Andrews University is there. Andrews is the Seventh-day Adventist University, uh, and, and they're located in Berrien Springs. But otherwise, I'd say the demographics is similar to other places that I've been. I did my residency training in Tulsa. Tulsa tends to be the buckle of the Bible belt. So they had more of a Christian emphasis in demographics than what we do. But quite honestly, in some way, it kind of excites me when I have a non-Christian coming in because they're a whole lot easier to introduce Jesus to. So it kind of is kind of cool when I see that somebody isn't a Christian. Other, yes? Uh, I had to do a lot of telemedicine this past year. What do you do with this in telemedicine? So I don't like telemedicine to begin with. Yes, because of this I've been forced to do some telemedicine. But even in telemedicine, I close every encounter with prayer. Um, and that's, we've had some pretty cool encounters too because people have, on that end, started weeping and saying, I can't 
way to be in person. Now, if we're doing telehealth, it's more because of their schedule rather than mine. I am seeing COVID. I'm treating COVID. Actually, I didn't stop caring for patients at all. Last year, when COVID was at its peak in New York City, I was in New York City for nine weekends. And I would fly out on Friday, work Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, come back, fly on Monday, be in my office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, fly out again on Friday. Did that for 89 days. And I'm absolutely convinced every crisis provides an opportunity for Christ. The numbers of people that I ministered to during COVID, especially in New York City, was over the top. It was absolutely an amazing, amazing opportunity. I'll tell you some stories if we did. Okay, thanks, Bob. So, <laughs> the preceptorship and how and where is some of the training. So, whole person care preceptorship. This is a month-long preceptorship that is done in with MedSend, Southern California. What you do is you have the opportunity to practice alongside and shadow clinicians that are incorporating whole person care. You also have the opportunity to see patients on your own, go through great medical centers, and you're in Southern California on a day like today. Who would not like to be in Southern California when the average temperature is beautiful and the sun is shining all the time? But it provides a great place to build diverse community with students from across the United States and beyond, shadow clinicians who practice whole person care opportunities to replenish and grow in your faith, your relationship with God, and certainly to enjoy various adventures in Southern Cal. It is real bedside patient interaction. You get to see patients. You get to incorporate those things that you've learned. You get to see how others and more experienced in the field are doing this. Several times weekly, you'll go into the medical centers and visit with patients. Once that preceptorship is done, you have an optional opportunity to go and practice with SIM to travel to Africa and work in SIM hospitals. Recently, MedSend has partnered with SIM, and they're able to accommodate an on-the-field experience. So again, this is an opportunity with MedSend. If you're interested, if you want more info, they do have a booth downstairs. You can also do this QR code and find out more opportunity. You can also send them your information, say, hey, I'm interested. Please let me know where and how I can do this. Any other questions? Yes. So, like, from the other end of the spectrum, have you ever had anybody that just, like, freaks out and just leaves because they're sort of overwhelmed by the religious sort of sector of it? I mean, I know like, you advertise it, but have you ever had anything like that? No, I really have not. Again, because I really let them pace it, okay? You don't want them to drink out of the fire hydrant, right? So we let them pace it, and I only go, again, I really try to go only where the Holy Spirit goes. We had one patient that, in all the time that I'm practicing now for 20 years, boy, that makes me sound old, uh, practicing for 20 years, and I had one patient walk in, read our Welcome to Rafa Medical Center, look at my staff, look around and say, I don't think this is a place. And they walked out. We didn't even get a chance to, chance to see her. Okay? But no, I really don't. And what most patients have said is that they feel cared about. And they feel accepted. So, no, literally no. And again, you got the fire hose. 
okay, because I had an hour to present this. Okay? But we literally walk with the patient where the patient is. And when at the end of their appointment time, when I offer to pray with them, that also just kind of adds that other layer. Okay? And then that's where, at the end, what specifically can I pray for you about? Okay? I hear that. And then obviously you believe in God, you also believe in Jesus. And I'm able to narrow it down. But it's done with the pace that they want to go. But good question. You got the fire hydrant. They don't. <laughs> uh, yes? Did you have resources for, as you said, like uh, when you're at a hospital, you have evidence-based prayer with patients. Do you have a list of resources like that? I work at a hospital that is very, you could just feel like anti-Jesus. And unfortunately, it is very, just feels very broken to me. We're doing stuff at my hospital that I just feel there's a lot of spiritual warfare. And I feel like I literally could get fired if I offer. There, there are lists of resources. Um, if you'll personally contact me, and my card's back there as well as some of uh, um, the handout in the book that Dan and I had written, um, I can put those in. I can put you in touch with some of that. Um, but also, there's so much evidence based online that I'm sure you can find some too. But if you'll contact me, I'll send that to you. You're welcome. Other questions? Yes. The patients I don't like, what do I do, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> fortunately, there's very few of those. Those that, that are more difficult, okay? I kind of more put them in the category of schedule wreckers. Okay? Um, I try to stay prayed up. <laughs> okay. and, and there's, you know, in, in all honesty, yeah, I can think of probably the one that's the biggest one that, that is difficult to deal with because she's just difficult. Grace, grace, grace. You know, fortunately, there's not many that are in my practice like that. So I, it's on a day-to-day. Some of it truly does depend upon how I'm doing Well, how will be how I respond to them. So it's important that I stay okay and in that right frame of mind and remind myself that God still has a purpose for this pain in the neck to, to be in my practice. Other questions? And I don't know if that fully answers it, but fortunately, most of my patients, I really have a good patient population, and I really do care and love my patients. So. Other questions? Okay. Well, thank you guys. You've been a great audience. Go and bring Jesus to our patients.